0: That's a fun song, isn't it? Okay, I, I have to ask those guys back there. I moved this. Is that okay? I moved this. Get it? ha <laughs> Because it was over here, but that would totally mess me up because I'm off-center. And I got this, you know, how many of you, it would mess you up? <laughs> Only a couple of you. Okay. <laughs> so let's also do a clothing check. The last um, service, half, half the message I spent with, like, something stuck to me over here. I'd hugged someone and their child tag stuck and half the message was given and I kept seeing something out of the corner of my eye I finally looked. I should have looked a lot sooner. So anything stuck to me? Anything stuck to me? No, we're okay. All right. Here we are. We are just three days away from a new year, twenty twenty. It doesn't seem possible, does it? And for about 92% of us, we are just three weeks away from the shame and disappointment of blowing it once again and giving up on our New Year's resolutions. <laughs> How many, yeah? Now, of course, that 92% is actually only of those who have made New Year's resolutions because statistics say that only like half of us, uh, we don't even bother because we know the failure is inevitable. Happy New Year to us, <laughs> right? Great way to start today. Well, would you believe me if I told you that this, uh, this whole idea, this custom of New Year's resolutions, it actually goes back thousands of years. And it's true, because I Googled it. And um, get this, the ancient Babylonians are said to have been the first people to make some kind of form of these New Year's resolutions like 4,000 years ago. So this is not just a, a modern day American thing. Thousands of years, thousands of years all over the world, human beings have somehow seen the start of a new year as this opportunity to make some desired changes in hope that the next year will somehow be better. Why? Why, where does this internal prompting and this motivation within the human soul come from? This innate desire as we approach a new year to want to make life better to want to make ourselves better in some way. Well, I think we have to go back thousands and thousands of years to discover the answer to that as well. Back to the very beginning, matter of fact, the genesis of human beings. In the first book of the collection of ancient manuscripts that we call the Bible, we discover a truth that I think explains a whole lot about us as human beings. It's in the first chapter of the book of the Bible, Genesis, and it says this. God created human beings in his own image. Human beings, you and me, we've been created in God's image. We have, we've been given the DNA of our creator. So that means that we have this tremendous potential to grow and to become like him. Able to experience life at a whole different level Able to share in many of his beautiful and his glorious attributes and characteristics like being loving and kind and compassionate and so much more. Able to consistently live life above the line. It seems that the beginning of a new year somehow stirs and it just awakens our soul to this, this awareness of the capacity that we have, the potential inside us to be so much more than we are right now. And it seems to stir our desires once again to just try to do something about it, to make some changes this year, because we want to be better people. Do you know what this is all about? Do you know what that is? It's our, it's our church logo, the FCF church logo, logo. And it's this simple yet powerful way of illustrating our mission as a church, which is this. Helping people reach their full redemptive potential in Christ. You see, it's all about movement. Movement. Our goal as a church is not simply to help you have a better life. It's to help you move toward your full potential, to become the person that God created you to be, the person made in his image, and to live life doing the things that he has equipped and he's gifted and he's called you to do in this life. You reaching your full potential is why we exist as a church. Now, I think there's two critical words in that mission statement that can so easily sort of be be dropped off or left out or unnoticed, go unnoticed, and it's this. Helping people reach their full redemptive potential in Christ. You see, apart from Christ our creator, it is absolutely impossible to reach our potential because the potential in us is his image that we bear. And that's why in a letter to some people living in Colossae, followers of Christ living in the city of Colossae, a couple thousand years ago, the Apostle Paul said this. You look at it while I take a drink, okay? <clears throat> he said to them, the followers, he says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You see, what we are capable of becoming can only be found And a restored relationship with Christ our creator. And that's because the image of the creator that human beings bear, what's been damaged, It, it, it was broken. It got really messed up in the very beginning when the first humans chose to step away from their trusting relationship with their creator for a taste of life, apart from his loving leadership. Sound familiar? Isn't that the tendency that we all have? So now, all of human history has been about God the creator trying to win back our trust so that we can be restored to this loving relationship with him that we've been created for. And through that restored relationship with Christ our creator, his image in us can then be restored as well. A restored image begins with a restored relationship. Because you see, folks, you and I, we were created for life with our creator, an intimate connection with him, one that is held together by trust, our trust in him. And then the scriptures tell us something about those of us who make this decision, this choice to, to move back to him, back, return back into a relationship of trust with him. It says that God has a plan for us. In the book of Romans chapter 829, it says this, it says for from the very beginning God decided that those who came to him, those who returned to him and trust, and all along he knew he would who would. That's God's foreknowledge. He didn't cause it, but he knows it. So what's his plan? What's he say about these people who return to him and trust? His plan is that they should become like his son. You see God's plan for those who move toward him and trust is to move us to become like his son, Jesus. Why? Because it's his image that we bear. The potential to be like Jesus, the most beautiful and loving person to ever walk on this planet is inside every single one of us. Now look at these words in Paul's letter to uh, those who had returned to God in trust living in the city of Philippi. Again, a couple thousand years ago. He said this, he who began a good work, he's speaking of God, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. That's saying that once we move into a restored relationship with, of trust with Christ, our creator, then he will move and he will work inside of us. He'll start this renovation project inside of us to change us, to restore his image in us. And then he promises, he says, I'll never give up on this project. I will never give up on you. He's not giving up on you and he never will. He will keep on working until the job is done. And I think that's pretty cool. I think that's really cool. God promises to move me and to transform me into this, this beautiful person that he created me to be. So why then? Why did Paul say this to the followers of Christ living in Rome? To them he said this, Romans 12 two, Do not allow this world to mold you into its own image. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by renewing your mind. I mean, to me, when I read that, it sounds kind of contradictory to what he told the Philippian followers. See, it makes it sound more like now that this whole change and transformation thing is actually my responsibility. I have to stop allowing the world to mold me. I have to renew my mind. It all depends on me. So whose job is this whole reaching my potential thing? I mean, Paul said that God was taking care of this transformation project, but then he turns around and he says that that I have to do something in order to be changed. So which one is it? Is it God's job or is it my job? Well, the answer to that question is yes. Yes. Yes, it is God's job. And yes, it's my job. Reaching our full redemptive potential is this beautiful collaborative effort between us and Christ our creator. God will do his part, he promises he'll never give up on it, but I also have to do my part in the process. You see, it's kinda like this, it's kinda like gardening. Think about this, in the fall, people plant these little things called bulbs in the ground. And why? Well, they do it because they know that these little ugly things have this tremendous potential to become something else, something quite beautiful. So they dig these holes and they bury them deep into the ground and when spring comes, what happens? Something beautiful and amazing emerges from the bulbs and pops up out of the ground. Now who calls these funny little round things to grow, to transform into these beautiful flowers? Was it the person who planted the bulbs? Or was it God, the creator? The answer is yes. It was a collaborative effort. God did something in the ground to those bulbs that only God can do. But it would not have happened if the person had not done their part. God expected the person to plant the bulbs in the ground before he would do what only he can do, which is to bring forth those beautiful flowers, a work of transformation. And it's the same same with you and me. God is the one who's doing a work inside our souls to transform us. We're basically these ugly little bulbs with the potential to be something beautiful and magnificent. God will absolutely do the work inside our souls to transform us, but only as we cooperate with him. Only as we do our part. So the question is, what is our part? What is our part in reaching our potential and being changed and transformed? It's this, it's to move to move, to move ourselves and to fully engage in the right environments where God can and will promise to do his part. So let's get real practical and talk about three key environments for our growth. If we're serious about reaching our God-given potential in this life, then we need to move into these three key environments in 2020. The first one is this, it's what we're doing right now. It's the weekly church worship service. Folks, the teaching we receive, and even the experience—even the experience of singing together as the body of Christ—these are critical to our growth and our development. It's imperative that we are planted in this environment on a weekly basis, because there's something that God does here, and there's something that our souls get in this environment, in this experience that we can get no other way. We have to be planted here. The second key environment is our daily personal worship. You know, we need to daily have this time and this place where we get alone with God, our creator, where we can listen to God speak to us by by reading his word, the Bible, and then where we can just pour our, our hearts to him in prayer. And it's imperative that we are planted in this environment on a daily basis because there's something that God does there that he does nowhere else. Something our souls get from this environment and this experience that we can get no other way two really important environments. And it would seem like, well, what, what more could you need than that? Isn't, that, isn't that enough, those two? There's something more our souls need if we're serious about reaching our potential. The book of Acts in the New Testament, it's an historical record of what happened after Jesus was resurrected and ascended back into heaven. It as people came to trust and follow him, became believers, the early church was formed. The church being people, not a building. So Acts is all about the formation of the early church, the first church. And we learn this about the early church and the followers. In Acts 2.42, it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer. Okay, so these first followers, they got it, man. They knew the importance of coming together in this large group to receive teaching, and then they understood that personal time alone with God, me and God in prayer, communicating just with God. But then it goes on in verse 46, and it says this. It says, they worship together regularly at the temple each day, They met in small groups in homes for communion and they shared meals with great joy and thankfulness. They met in small groups in homes. I mean, from the very start of the church, Christ followers seemed to know that in addition to meeting for teaching and worship, in addition to my my, my personal time, just me and God, daily personal worship, that there's this other experience that they needed. And it was about intentionally spending time with a small group of fellow followers. A group where instead of sitting in a row facing front and listening to someone teach, they instead sat in a circle face to face, looking into the eyes of people who knew them. Not just their names, people who knew their life, people who knew their stories, people who knew and cared about what was going on in each other's lives. The earlier followers knew their their souls got something from this environment and God could do something with this experience. It couldn't happen any other way. You know, it was about 20 years ago, I read a a book that was life-changing for me. The funny thing, it wasn't really the whole book that was life-changing, it was one line in the book one sentence in the book. It got planted deep in my soul and it has truly been this guiding force in my life. The book was called The Safest Place on Earth by Larry Crabb and the one line said this, togetherness in Christ encourages movement toward Christ. Togetherness in Christ encourages movement toward Christ, intentionally being with other people for a purpose, experiencing this togetherness in Christ thing, it is essential to my growth and my development. Without it, I will drift. Without it, I'll become complacent. Without it, I'll lose my passion. Without it, I'll become more self-centered and give in to temptations more easily. But when I am intentionally, intentionally experiencing this togetherness in Christ with fellow followers, it moves me. It moves me closer toward Christ and closer toward my potential to be like him. Now, we experience this form of togetherness when we gather here on a Sunday morning. But folks, there's this whole different level of togetherness we experience when we intentionally gather in a circle with a smaller group of people for a pur- purpose, an intentional time and an intentional purpose. We meet Wednesdays at seven o'clock at this location. And here's what we're, we're talking about. Here's what we're studying. Now I bet you it's gotta be somebody thinking, oh man, why'd I come today? This whole, group, they just wanna get me into a growth group. This is just an extension of Thomas's announcement. I'm here to hear a message about getting in a growth group. Why?" wah, wah, wah. Is that what this is all about? Well, without hesitation or shame, I say to you, yep, (laughs) yep, yep. That's exactly what my goal was. But you know what? I'm not trying to convince you because it's something the church needs. I'm trying to convince you because your soul and my soul desperately need it. So just hang in there with me, okay? Three times a year, as Thomas said, we highlight our group's ministry and hope that you will get connected in a circle, fall, winter, and spring. And each time we do this, though, I've got to be honest. I'm not exactly sure what the percentage is, but it's like half or even less than half percent of our people who call themselves, you know, part of this, this is home to them, our church family, connect in a group. Why? I mean, I've pondered that question a lot. And I actually came up with three reasons. It's more like three problems, we could say. I mean, one is this. It's the obvious. It's the time problem. Right? I mean, the first followers, they gathered in small circles, but what else did they have to do with their time, right? I mean, today, we've got careers and jobs, we've got sports, we've got kids' activities, we've got dating apps, we've got Facebook, we've got Netflix. I mean, we are stressed-out, busy people. So how are we supposed to, to fit in a group into an already overloaded schedule? It's much harder for us, but that doesn't make it any less important. At all, matter of fact, I think it kind of magnifies the importance, wouldn't you say? Second problem is this, we have a fear problem. You know, we're afraid that that we're just not spiritual enough or we don't know enough about the Bible and and so we're just new to this whole thing and we're afraid that we'll just look stupid and, and people might judge us. Not to mention that it's scary to join a group with a bunch of people who are strangers. You're walking in, you don't even know who they are yet. You know, what if they turn out to be really weird? You no, know, it's something to be scared about, right? I can promise you that we work really, really hard to create groups here at FCF where all people feel comfortable and safe no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, no matter what your knowledge level may be. Um, as for the weird people part, I can't make any promises. Just, just want to put that out there, it happens. Third problem is this. I think we have an invisible problem. This is probably the biggest one, an invisible problem. Let me explain it this way. In 1902, a woman by the name of Mary Anderson, she was visiting New York City on a wintry day, and she couldn't help but notice how crazy the the city roads got as soon as the weather turned nasty because every driver was in this mad panic to clear his windshield in order to see where he was going. But see, they couldn't clean the windshield with a little flick of a switch like we can now. When cars were invented, there were no windshield wipers. The driver had to roll down the window and stick his head out the side of the car, try to take care of it that way. So this situation inspired Mary to think about creating a solution to the problem, windshield wipers. I think it took something like 20 years before they actually became standard on cars that were being made. But what Mary hit on a century ago was the solution to what a guy named Tony Fidel, he was the creator of the iPod, uh, what he calls an invisible problem. So what is an invisible problem? It's a problem that we don't think of as being a problem because we're so used to it. Let that one sink in. How many things does that apply to in our lives? A problem that we don't think of as being a problem because we're so used to it. Many in churches today tend to think of being connected in a group as more like a luxury than a necessity, you know? It's kind of a bonus. It's a nice add-on to your spiritual experience if you have the time and if you have the interest, but it's not a necessity. Our invisible problem is how much our souls desperately need this kind of one-another connection that we experience when we regularly intentionally meet in a circle with a small group of people who are also on a spiritual journey. Our souls get things from this kind of spiritual experience that we do not get from the large worship experience and we do not get even in our one-on-one personal worship experience with God. And God does something in that environment that he doesn't do, can't do in the other environments. And that's because our souls were created for a one another connection. A kind of connection that requires us to move out of the row and into a circle where we sit face-to-face, where we don't just sit and listen, where we also talk and we share. And in talking and sharing, we begin to care about each other. And in caring, we find that we authentically start to love one another in a very deep and personal, up-close kind of way. This one another connection. It's spoken of throughout the New Testament scriptures. There's actually 59 one-anothers, but let's just talk about three that our souls need and that we can get when we move into a circle. Romans 15:7. It says, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you. Acceptance. Acceptance. Every human being longs to be accepted, accepted simply for who they are. We long to be accepted without pretense, without having to prove ourselves, without having to measure up to some kind of a standard. We long to be accepted with all of our flaws and all of our failures. Please just accept me for who I am, love me for who I am. And folks, acceptance is the soil our souls need for healing and growth for authentic growth, that acceptance is the beginning of it all. If we are not in an environment where we are truly loved and accepted for who we are as we are, we will never authentically grow. We may conform, make some changes, but it's, it's not gonna last for long, it's not authentic. We need to know that we are accepted just as we are, just the way we are for the beginning of healing and growth. So that soil is so critical Uh, to our health and our our, our healing and our growth. We need to move into an environment where people authentically accept us as we are if we're gonna reach our full potential. We also need to be in an environment of encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, encourage one another and build each other up. It's not talking about just the surfacey kind of like, hey, everyone gets a trophy. It's about helping someone find the courage to live the life they're capable of living, helping them find the strength to stop doing the things that God said is destroying them and to start doing and keep on doing those things that move them toward God's good plan for them. Encouragement, it's the soil our souls need to stay strong and to persevere toward our potential, especially when times get tough. When it gets hard and we just want to give up, we need the soil of encouragement. We need to move into an environment where people regularly and joyfully encourage and build us up. And then our souls need this as well. James, he was the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James. James, And he says this, we need to pray for each other. Pray for each other. I am convinced that this is a huge, invisible problem for us. The longer I've been uh, following Christ, the more deeply I've become aware of my need for prayer from other people. How much I depend on it. And God, he has surprised me time and time again how he has brought people into my life for this purpose. Particularly over this past year, he's just wowed me a couple of times. People who were once strangers to me, and then how did we meet? A growth group a growth group. There are two women in particular that they take this whole pray for each other thing very, very seriously. And they have communicated to me at key moments when I really needed to hear it, how they were praying for me in very specific ways. I can't begin to tell you how comforting that was, that is, how much my, my soul was just strengthened from that, how it moved me closer to Christ. Prayer's the soil where our souls find the comfort and strength and peace and direction for our lives. We need to move into an environment where people, it's not just praying, but they are praying for us. It's an invisible problem for so many of us. If we've been functioning without being connected in a circle of people who accept one another, encourage one another, and pray for one another very intentionally on a regular basis, then we're kind of like the people driving their cars before Mary Anderson invented windshield wipers. We have a problem that we don't think of as being a problem because we're so used to it. And the problem is, is that our souls desperately need a place where we regularly get acceptance and encouragement and prayer in order for us to move toward our potential in Christ but actually it's about much more than than getting these things. Truth is, it's just as much about giving these things. I mean, look at our logo once again. How many chevrons do you see there? Two. We could have made it just one, me reaching my potential, but no, it's significant that there's two of them there because it's not just about me reaching my potential, being so self-focused. It's about each of us helping each other reach their potential as well, helping each other, a one another kind of connection, getting and giving. Our souls need to be in an environment where we can regularly give acceptance to someone else, give encouragement, give our prayers to others, because it's as we give that our souls truly, truly come alive. As we give, our souls are made healthy and strong. As we move out of our own little bubble, our own little worlds that just absorb our attention and our energy, and we begin to move out of that and start to care about somebody else's little bubble and their little world and what's going on with them. It, it breaks the grip of self-centered living that comes far too easy and natural to us. So as we learn to think about others and put others uh, first, And give to others, it's then that this image of Christ our Creator is more and more restored in us. We're never more like Jesus our Creator than when we are giving. Our souls need a one another connection where we both get and give, an environment where we intentionally and regularly gather together in a circle where we accept one another and we encourage one another and we pray for one another but it requires us to move, to move. Listen to more of what Larry Crabb had to say about togetherness in that book. He says, in a spiritual community, people reach deep places in each other's hearts that are not often or easily reached. Spiritual togetherness, it creates a movement. Togetherness in Christ encourages movement toward Christ and I'll add movement toward Christ likeness becoming like him that's why we're better together we're better together that's what my t-shirt says we're better together all of our growth group leaders are going to be wearing these t-shirts over the next couple of days we are better together and how I hope and pray that those words togetherness in Christ creates movement toward Christ that those will penetrate your soul and impact your life the way that they have mine for over 20 years now imagine this. Imagine that there's a father with six children, big family. The children all love and adore their father. They love being with their dad. They love talking to their dad. They go to him for guidance and comfort when needed. They obey all his rules you're all thinking, this is impossible, right? They appreciate him. They regularly thank him for all he does for them. The father enjoys this wonderful relationship with every single one of his children. It's beautiful. But the children have, well, they have no relationship with each other. I mean, it's not like they dislike each other, and, and they don't argue or fuss. They're cordial. They're friendly toward one another. But they don't relate to one another. They live under the same roof, but they don't share their lives with one another the way that they do with their father. The father knows and cares for each of his children deeply and intimately, but they don't really know each other or care much about each other. Is he a happy father? Or does his heart break because his children do not share the same level of life and love with one another as they do with him? A couple of years ago, Randy did a message series called The Big Picture. And in it, he gave us just this wonderful summary statement. It just summarizes God's plan for humanity, human beings who are created in his image. And he said, it's this, here's God's big plan for us. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. Now, I mean, let's, look at that in a different way. What if it just said God's big plan is the development of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ? It's a whole different plan, isn't it? No, God's plan is the development of an eternal family of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another, a family. God's creating a family, he wants a family. Children that don't just love him, but they also truly love one another just as much. And this plan of God, it's not just something that's for some day in heaven, that's, that's what's gonna happen when we get on the other side. No, it's starting right here, right now on this side of heaven. And it develops and it grows this family as each one of us chooses to move into a circle where we learn to live this one another way, getting and giving what our souls need in order to move toward our full redemptive potential. That's because spiritual togetherness, it creates movement. Spiritual togetherness creates movement. Togetherness in Christ encourages movement toward Christ. So the question is, are you ready to move? in 2020, are you ready to move into a circle? Let's pray. Father God, how much we thank you. We thank you so much for the promise that you are doing and and will continue to do a work inside of us, a work of transformation that you never give up on us. How thankful we are for that. So God, with your promise to us, I pray that all of us are motivated today to move ourselves, to do our part, to move um, into these key environments where you can do what only you can do. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.